Welcome to Head Fund Tips with Tom Hayes. This is for the week ending May 29th, 2020. And this is our 32nd video cast and 22nd podcast. So welcome after a great week, short holiday week, but a great week nonetheless, a lot of good things happening. Um, so as we do each week, I'd like to start off and just thank uh, Meta Singh and Devik Jain for including me in their article in Reuters this week. Uh, basically, the quote was, uh, this was, uh, I guess, on Wednesday, the core theme is a rotation out of the high-flying tech stocks and a move into laggard sectors which have underperformed like banks, said Thomas Hayes. In the last couple of days, reopening and the reopening and the recovery have started to feel real for people, and that goes a long way for confidence both at the consumer level and in market sentiment as well. So we're going to cover a lot of these aspects in detail uh, in this week's video cast because uh, on a day-to-day -day basis, it, uh, it moves and fits and starts. And we, we want to get the theme and the intermediate term outlook correct, 6 to 18 months, uh, not the hourly or the daily. Uh, that's, uh, we'll leave that for other people to focus on. But uh, we're going to just kind of walk through the things lining up that support that outlook. Um, and this week's article of the week was called the Dua Lipa did a full 180 stock market and sentiment results. So you see with this uh, starting chart, that's uh, certainly quite a turnaround that we've had since March 23rd. And I got the idea for this song from my five and seven year old daughters, Mimi and Annabelle. Uh, well, Annabelle's the five-year-old, and uh, they were doing one of their dance parties, and uh, one of the songs on their playlist was this famous artist, Dua Lipa, and she has a song called Don't Start Now. You probably recognize it. Uh, and these were the lyrics that were appropriate for this week's stock market. So did a full 180, uh, but look where I ended up, and uh, look where we've ended up. And if you look at some of the tech stocks now, making new highs, it's, it's mind boggling. So, um, uh, well over a month ago, about, uh, on April 23rd, we laid, laid out an aggressive case for, uh, rotation or at least a participation into cyclicals and value from tech growth. And in, each instance, we made the case that while it could be at the expense of tech growth, we were more looking at um, a relative outperformance versus a zero-sum game. In other words, tech and growth, which have had huge runs, could grind higher, but we would, we th we, the thesis is that the laggard value cyclical stocks which tend to do well coming out of recessions and that's what we are in unfortunately i think it's going to be the steepest quickest recession and the sharpest upturn and recovery in history uh, that's certainly what it looks like right now and um and the, kind of the basis was that you've got these top five weights of the S&P 500, um, Microsoft, Apple, Amazon, you know the names, Facebook, uh, that are driving the indices, but you have a tremendous amount of stocks that haven't 
participated to the same level and are still trading well below their 200 day moving averages. And, and that's kind of what we're going to get into in this week's uh, video cast podcast and kind of what's happened in scenarios like that historically and why we can be looking at some of these laggard sectors moving forward. Um, and then we go on here. And by the way, if you haven't read some of these previous articles, you can do so under this category on the right hand side. You just click on uh, category commentary or category sentiment. I file it under both categories each week because it covers both things, um, as you can see up here. So that's a good way to, you can just open up a chart of the S&P, see what we were saying on particular weeks and then what happened and uh, make your judgments from there. But I think you'll be pretty, pretty happy with what you see on a week to week basis. So, and then last week we reemphasized this thesis and covered the, the same laggard sectors, banks, defense stocks, home builders, small caps and energy and you can review it here this was the grace potter falling or flying stock market definitely click on that so this week we're actually taking a look at what is happening since the march 23rd lows so these are round numbers here but uh, this was written on wednesday night so as of thursday morning's opening opening the s p was up uh, almost 37 percent off the march 23rd lows the nasdaq was surprisingly just barely ahead of that but again the top five weights are tech in the s p 500 so um or communication sector in in the case of some of them but um the nasdaq was up just a percentage more about 37 and a half look at the banks though albeit they they fell a lot more in the crash they're up 45.7% uh, as of Thursday's open. Small caps were up 46% relative to the S&P, which was up 36%. Uh, defense stocks, which I've been talking about in the context of the escalating rhetoric with China, um, not necessarily leading to a Cold War or a backtrack in the trade war i think that deal is pretty well cemented and so far both parties are adhering to it i think today's speech by the president uh president trump was a move in the right direction he he did take steps in terms of uh, there will be certain sanctions and and certain punishments in the way hong kong is treated with trade now that they're more a part of china but um, by and large, the aggressive stance that the market feared didn't come to pass, which was constructive. Uh, so I think it'll just be this constant rhetoric about culpability for the coronavirus, um, you know, the, the trade issues, et cetera, going back and forth, intellectual property issues. And, and that's reason enough for having brought attention to the low valuations, which I think the top weights of the um, defense and aerospace ETF ITA were trading at about 13 times uh, as of a week ago when we put this article out, uh, kind of uh, viewpoint on defense stocks. And we did so in the media as well. A couple times you can review those. <clears throat> so... The next sector, obviously, is energy has had a monster run. I think this month's 
uh, oil, the underlying oil is up 90% in the month of May. So the biggest monthly move ever, obviously coming off zero <laughs> on the cash price last month or negative, uh, certainly helped with those percentages. But the XLE, which is the larger cap energy names, is also up 70% off the uh, March 23rd lows. So you're seeing these laggard sectors outperforming, and I think that can uh, continue to persist. If you look at the NASDAQ, obviously it fell less, and now it's nearing new highs. <clears throat> so these, albeit they've had much larger percentage moves have have a lot more room to run uh, until they start to make highs in um, in in the future, whether it takes a year or sooner or later. If you look at the 1987 analog, it took about a year and a half for the indices to make new highs. I think the amount of stimulus aid and liquidity in this case is so significant that we could potentially see that sooner, provided that the any subsequent waves of the virus are flare-ups and regional and can be quickly contained versus wholesale, which I do believe that uh, enough of the population is practicing uh, safe measures and those who can work from home are working from home. And when people go out to indoor places at, at the very least uh, or places where social distancing is not possible, they are wearing uh, masks uh, by and large. So uh, certainly in the in the places that were hardest hit, and in the other places where it was uh, hit not to the same extent, um, uh, maybe a little bit more more leniency. So as you can see, the most crowded trade, uh, according to the Bank of America Global Fund Manager Survey for the month of May, was tech and growth. Obviously, defensive stocks, cash is still uh, at 5.7%, which is uh, what you see near bottoms, not near tops. Uh, treasuries were highly held. Healthcare was the most overweight that it's been. So we're looking at a reallocation or a lightening up on the winners and a reallocation to the laggards that uh, that have significant more space to run and uh, and are, are starting to manifest this thesis, certainly in the last, uh, since April 23rd and before, we've touched on that pretty much every week uh, since the lows. Um, and in March, we did a lot of media talking about uh, banks and talking about some of these industrials and talking about uh, uh, energy and um, uh, different groups like that. So uh, if you need to review the Bank of America Global Fund Manager Survey, that's very helpful. You can see through here, it's blurry, but when you click on it, it becomes clear that energy was the most underweight, uh, as were industrials and uh, banks, and then most overweight, healthcare, tech, cash, and bonds. So you can see still with energy moving 70%, uh, managers are still dramatically underweight. Uh, the de defense stocks are kind of, you know, subsector in line with industrials. Again, another outperformer, um, and uh, banks, same, same thing. So we'll we'll continue to keep an eye on those. So what are the factors aiding the recovery trade? I think the first and foremost, obviously, the most important and the number, the most important number the Fed is watching, are the new cases and deaths are declining. And they're consistently declining, and they're also declining in those states that have been open for a number of weeks. Uh, there's a latency period of 14 days or an in in incubation period, but even with that, by and large, it's it's the numbers are going in the right direction. 
and that's the most important factor because the quicker those can uh, improve, the quicker people can go back to work and to their normal activities, which brings back demand, which makes the over nine and a half trillion of stimulus aid and liquidity start to circulate and you start to get the velocity and uh, and that can really go a long way to fill what will be potentially a 6% GDP contraction or $1.2 trillion economic pothole filled with over nine and a half trillion after the next package, it'll probably be closer to 10 and a half or $11 trillion of stimulus aid and liquidity. So 10 times the asphalt relative to the problem. And that can go a long way as demand gets pulled, pulled back in. And we're going to talk about where we're seeing that. So that's factor number one is new cases. The health aspect is improving. Um, if you think about it, I mean, there's, by the time they go through all of the proper channels of testing and double-blind testing and all of that as it relates to either a treatment or a vaccine, it's going to be, and I know they're doing warp speed and maybe they'll surprise to the upside and get us a vaccine by the end of the year. But by and large, if you talk to doctors on the front line and some of the treatments that they're doing in the hospital that are controversial, um, the big one that's being used in concierge doctors, which I'm familiar with, um, that uh, people are seeing good results. And again, this is unproven. Nothing is going to be proven until we don't need it, which is two years out. So what doctors are trying to do is go off anecdotal uh, data and instances that they're hearing from their colleagues uh, who are specialized in this, and then if the potential upside is greater than the downside, prescribing things off-label and then while doing so, aggressively monitoring because every drug has side effects. So uh, Ivermec uh, Invermectin is another drug which is, you know, ordinarily for... Um, for uh, lice and scabies and that type of thing. But if you actually talk to a lot of doctors on the front line, this is being prescribed, as was hydroxychloroquine. And anecdotally, it's helping. Will we have good enough data? I mean, the data from the hydroxychloroquine test now is in question. Uh, so there were 100 physicians that, there was an article in the New York Times today that are questioning the timing and the legitimacy and the company that claimed to have been providing the data from the hundreds of hospitals. So the jury's still out on that. There, you know, there are dangers and risks with everything, but if we're going to see treatments in the, prior to the normal latency period to get a, an approved vaccine, they're all going to be experimental. They're all going to have potential side effects. So our our, our most offensive approach is the one which is being taken, which we've seen if you wear masks in the places that people have worn masks in certainly indoor spaces and outdoor spaces where you can't socially distance, the uh, infection rates just fall through the floor. So I think we're doing all of that. And then, uh, you know, for people who do get infected, I think we have to just accept that um, uh, experimental treatments with uh, questionable outcomes are better than no treatments at all. And we have to just be open-minded. So if it's, you know, the Japanese drug, which worked and then it didn't work, or the um, 
experimental drugs that you're seeing, uh, ivermectin and hydroxy is obviously the political football. We'll see what comes out with that data inquiry. Um, but with all of this, you can't, you know, you're not buying it over the counter. You're getting it from a doctor. And if you're getting it from a doctor, they, they need to be monitoring you and looking at all contraindications. But I, I think we'll probably see a lot more experimental things go right than go wrong in coming months. And that could accelerate even these downward slopes that we're seeing here. But if people have in the back of their mind that we need, you know, a double blind trial approved, blah, 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 you're, you're not getting that for two years. And by then, uh, it's highly likely after the second wave, it will fizz, fizzle out on its own, like swine flu and uh, H1N1, etc. So um, let's keep open minded and let's keep doing everything within our control. And these numbers are going to continue to improve. And, and as a result, we're, we're seeing the economy and demand come back. And, and we're going to cover a lot of the demand numbers as we go forward here in this in this video cast podcast. Um, the other factor is forward guidance by the Fed. Um, when they came out with all these programs, it's <laughs> what's interesting is by virtue of having the programs, they largely didn't need to draw down on a lot of the programs. So basically, like, so for instance, you saw Boeing do a huge debt offering in the private markets once the market knew that if if they didn't provide the debt financing, the government would, um, it basically, the, all the capital became available. It was like a proxy government backstop. And as a result, you know, all the major companies in, you know, in the S&P 500, They've issued over a trillion dollars of debt as of May 27th, which is more than double the average pace for the last handful of years by this by this time of the year. So a lot of the larger companies that make up the S&P 500 are fully recapitalized. And even if you look at the PPP program, um, the second round is not even fully subscribed yet. Now, they've moved to make the restrictions less onerous. In other words, you have way more time to now spend the money. So I think that will encourage a lot more businesses to take the money in coming weeks and months uh, to shore up their businesses because rather than having to put it to work in whatever it was, 60 days, they'll now have, I think, six months or so, which will be very, very attractive for most businesses to take the PPP money. So that'll add more to the uh, lower tier. And and by the same token, um, which we'll touch on later in the uh, in this video cast, is that they haven't even started the Main Street lending program, $650 billion to mid-sized businesses. Uh, that starts in the next few days. So much of the program that was announced that stabilized the market has not even be, been implemented in the market. The money has not even gotten to the market. Uh, yes, you've seen a huge amount of mortgage-backed security uh, buying uh, over the last six weeks. That's stabilized because, you know, there's a certain number of uh, commercial businesses that couldn't pay their rent. So so that was huge to stabilize credit markets in that regard. But uh, this is the second factor that's helping is people that need to be recapitalized. You know, this is not an antidote for what was imminent uh, solvency issues before the corona crisis, but this is a solution for companies with liquidity crises 
if you were a reasonably operating business prior to Corona, uh, to the Corona crisis, you would not go bankrupt as a result of an exogenous event. If you were already teetering, well, then then there's nothing any of these programs could do to help. But um, this has saved a lot of businesses. So and uh, and the money's not even out there yet. So the private market stepped in once they knew that the public markets were there to backstop it. Next, uh, global fiscal stimulus has been off the charts. It's not just the U.S. with the 3.8 trillion CARES package and then the loan extensions, and we've gone through that in previous weeks. If you want a granular view of all the stimulus aid and liquidity, just click on Again, commentary or sentiment, and you can review our previous articles that went dollar by dollar where all the money went. Um, but globally, it's over 11 trillion. We're probably going to get another trillion dollar package in the U.S., maybe even two. Uh, the Democrats will get more money for the states. The Republicans will get more money for infrastructure, and that will be stimulative. Um, and this is the breakdown globally, country by country what they've done in fiscal stimulus. And the irony is prior to the Corona crisis, there was a narrative that um, monetary policy had run its course. Basically we're out of bullets, we're pushing on a string. And unless Germany would finally get on board and start doing fiscal stimulus in Europe, uh, the prospects for growth were dim. And Corona crisis has brought them to the table. Uh, this week, they announced a 750 billion plus euro package, and Japan did another 1.1 trillion dollars that the parliament's expected to pass before June 17th. So that's two trillion there, another one to two trillion in the U.S. You're looking at you know greater than 12 percent of global GDP in fiscal stimulus coming down the pike in the next you know three to six months. So this is going to be hugely hugely stimulative for sure. Uh, the global monetary expansion, uh, you know, uh, AEI did a good article, you can Google on that, but we, we know the numbers, two and a half trillion in the last couple of months in the US. Uh, the estimates is the Fed assets could grow to as much as 10 trillion from seven up from four. So, um, Prior to the 2008 financial crisis, the Fed held $890 billion. We're at about $7 trillion this week. And if these estimates are correct, we could go up to $10 trillion if needed to get through this uh, situation. This is not dissimilar, just to get back to the fiscal side, to World War II. I think debt to GDP got up to 119% in 1946 and then it was down in the 60s by the mid 1950s so you know this is a war this is an invisible enemy or however you want to characterize it and uh the the global community both on the monetary and fiscal side are coming together to do whatever it takes to make people whole that had to sit home for two months and uh, not be able to work as and business to keep people employed etc so um, obviously, this goes into some granularity about what the uh, Bank of Japan has done and the ECB, but it's it's massive across the board. The consumer balance sheet, this is the fifth factor leading to this 
recovery trade is uh, the consumer balance sheet was very strong coming into this crisis. So <laughs> if you look at personal saving as a percentage of disposable income, it was nearing 10% at the beginning of this year, which was up from 2.5% in early 2005. So um, you basically had almost the 300% gain in people's saving and, uh, and, and cleaning up their balance sheet going into this. So there were reserves, there was a cushion. And then if you look at, which I'll just pull this up really quickly, the personal savings rate as a result of um, spending dropping in the last two months and income going up dramatically because of the uh, $1,200 per person stimulus checks, and $500 per child for a lot of families. Uh, this went to the highest ever. You know, look, this goes back. This data set goes back well beyond 1960, and the personal savings rate went over 30. I think 30, 33 percent as of April. So you know, there's a lot of dry powder there. Not just for institutional money managers at 5.7 percent above the 10-year average of 4.7 percent. So they're going to have to put that money to work. But most importantly, the consumer is loaded with cash at this point on, on average. Uh, obviously, some people are really facing a tough time right now. And, um, you know, that's, that's, um, it's, it's sad to see the pressure that this has put on a lot of people and families, both from a health standpoint and a financial standpoint. But on average, um, there's a lot of dry powder that wants to go to restaurants, that wants to go to movies, that wants to go to the ballpark, that wants to go to the mall and buy some clothes and uh, probably get back to gym memberships uh, for sure. Um, so this is pretty promising because this is just uh, pent up demand is basically what this comes down to. Uh, so are, are we just getting started? You know, what's very interesting, one of the things that I've learned about uh, through, you know, trial and error and making mistakes over a long, long career is historically, when you come out of these collapse periods, um, overbought and oversold indicators on balance are very, very useful in a range-bound or a trending market. Uh, they do come in handy. What I've found um, is that when you're coming out of such a dramatic dislocation like greater than 20, 30% corrections. On the recovery, all of the overbought indicators get pinned and they tend to stay pinned. So where most people are right in saying this is overbought and that's overbought and this indicator is at historic overbought and that indicator is at historic overbought, that's true. And that's also been true every single time you get out of these. And they tend to stay pinned for weeks or months at a, at a time. It's just either the flaw in how they're constructed or just, you know, what happens in these aberrational periods. And so you want to be very careful when you're looking at overbought indicators coming out of such a dislocative period that you, it's, it's one thing to lighten up. Obviously, some of these names have moved 100 plus percent and, you know, anyone smart takes some off the table. But um, it doesn't mean it's over. So one of the 
uh, indicators I was updating for my free videos this week. Uh, and by the way, you can see all the videos that I post here. You just click on that blue link and you can do one or 10 a day. They're only a minute each, but it just kind of measures an indicator against the, the respective ind indices and determines whether it's something useful to, um, to watch on a regular basis or something worth discarding. We just, you know, review each one objectively and some we say this is not something that I would pay attention to and some we say this is something that we do use in a basket of, of indicators. Um, but the S&P stocks below, I'm sorry, above their 200-day moving average, this one really struck out for me. So effectively, we've had six periods in the last 20 years where you had this massive dislocation where uh, less than 20% of the S&P components, so less than 100 of the S&P 500 stocks were trading above their 200-day moving average. So they were really uh, tremendous stocks, amount of stocks, more than 80% of stocks in their own bear market. And what happened next? So you can see the S&P 500 below uh, as it drops below 20% uh, of the stocks above their 200-day moving average. These were all monster corrections, you know, 50% peak to trough, 50% peak to trough. Um, this one was 21% peak to trough. I think we had about 20% here, about 20% here, and then uh, about 35% in the most recent one. And in every case, what happens... Um, is in, you know you'll have some instances where it bounces around what we've done here is we've noted that when it recovers to more than half in this case we're using 60 percent of the stocks in the s p 500 so more than 300 stocks are trading above their 200 day moving average after having flushed to less than uh 20% so less than 100 so you went from less than 100 to more than 300 we d we're defining that as a recovery for the purposes of this indicator and for the purposes of this article not because you know it's some externally determined number it's an arbitrary number but it's one worth using <clears throat> so um, in one two three four I would say this one pretty much went straight up. So I'd say one, two, three out of the six periods, it retested and bounced around. But in all of these periods, you never got back above 60%. So you were just bouncing around and building a bottom. So in 2002 and 2003, building a bottom for a while, you never got that recovery mark of 60. Same thing in 2008 and 2009. You got a bear market rally up to 53, but then you rolled back over. So you never really saw a true overbought or uh, recovery um, signal in 2009. Same in, uh, then in 2012, it was a relatively quick 2011 and 2012. You did uh, chop a little bit on the way up, but you didn't retest. You actually did go straight up to the 60. In 2015-16, you did retest. You know, you got that bear market bounce, but it didn't get up to 60, and then it retested, and then finally you got the 60. And what happened uh, in 2018 to early 2019? You uh, did not chop. You broke below 20, and then you went straight up to 60. And then here, what was surprising is after the 30, 
And why I brought this chart out for this week's article is after a 37% rally trough to recent peak, we're still only at 43% of S&P stocks above the two their respective 200 day moving averages so about just over 200 of the 500 stocks are above their 200 which means th you know 300 give or take 300 are still below their 200 day moving averages which speaks to what we've been talking about the last few weeks which is the narrow breadth of the market and kind of the you know stool legs that this thesis relies on is that in order to get the full recovery of this rally, you're going to need broadening participation. And to get broadening participation, you're going to need those laggard sectors start to participate. You can't get back up to a true recovery over 60 if it's only five stocks leading the way. Um, and and we're, we're seeing that now, and we saw it in spades in the last week or so, up until the last you know day or so, it took a breather. But um, the other thing that's important about this is that in all of these instances, you know, the market route, by the time it hit 60% of the S&P 500, that's these purple circles, 60% were over their 200-day moving average. The market had rallied pretty huge off the bottom. I mean, this rally here, this was by June. I think this was like a 40% rally in 2009 by May or June, 40% 40, 40 off the bottom. So everyone at that point at this circle when 60% were above their 200-day moving average were saying that everything's overbought. This rally is over. Um, same thing in 2012. You had you were basically, by the time you hit 60% above their 200-day moving average, you were near new highs in 2012. So everyone was saying, we're going back down. This is overbought. Same thing in 2016. By the time it hit that... 60%, you were basically at that um, first high. You were, you were right near there. You're retesting the, the most recent highs. So it would basically be the equivalent of right now going all the way back up to filling this gap. Let's call it 33.50. Imagine if we were 33.50 at the in the S&P 500. Everyone would be saying with no break hypothetically we're totally overbought. This is completely bananas. Uh, this is crazy. And, you know, with rearview data coming in on a daily and weekly basis, they would be right. I mean, you'd look at the data, you'd be like, this is crazy. But forward-looking data is a different story. The point is that even though you were at or near new highs in many of these instances during the recovery, it was just the beginning. You were overbought, but then you got way more overbought for the next five years. And from 2003 to 2007, you kept going. Remember, you'd already gone back up to over 60 and the rally was just beginning. Same thing in 2009. Imagine if you had bought when it was overbought after a 40% rally in 2009, you had you know two more years of a huge rally before the correction in 2011. Same thing in 2011. You know, by the time you'd got here, you were pretty close to new highs again, uh, but the market kept going for another uh, three, four years until two, late 2015. Same thing with 2015, a three-year rally. Um, you know, the, the same thing here. You'd rallied almost back to October highs by January, 
and everyone was saying we're going back down. This is the end of the bull market. Oh, the, the big the big story here was um, head and shoulders. Okay, all the technicians. This was a shoulder. This was the head. This was the shoulder. We were going to collapse down to here, and it just kept going for one of the biggest rallies. I mean, last year was just unbelievable. Um, our our best year. So, um, so you know, we'll see. Now, keep in mind. Uh, what we haven't done is we haven't hit that 60. So we could be here, go up to 53 and then retest. We could chop around. We could do another chop around like we did here. But it basically would imply that the lows are probably in. And if we do hit the 60 and get really overbought, uh, that would be very, very constructive. Now, if you look here, you know, sometimes after it did hit that overbought in the new highs, you've got some sideways consolidation for a while. I think here maybe a, a couple of weeks, here maybe a month, you, you know, but you you were still at the beginning of the rally. So I'm just putting that in perspective. We're, we're probably going to get more overbought before we get confident, or we could chop around again, and, and we could be in this range before finally uh, breaking out and making new highs. So that's all on the table. But to see after a 37% rally that only 43% are above their 200-day moving averages tells me we've got we've got some room here to figure out what's what. And I hope hope you found that helpful because uh, that was a big eye opener to me that these type of characteristics are near to beginnings, not near ends. Um, and that's pretty promising. So hopefully we'll get this 60 in coming weeks or months. Uh, if not, we'll chop around for a while before we get it. But but the worst is probably behind us. OK, now on to the shorter term view. Um, the sentiment was also supportive of the fact that there's probably more gas in the tank. Bullish percent was only at 33%. That's uh, at best a mid-level range. There's no signs of euphoria there for individual investors. Bearishness came down a little bit to 42%. But again, you know, we're nowhere near uh, complacency or euphoria. Um, as you can see, you know, when we get the bulls up in the 40s, then we can start to look at it. Are things getting a little frothy in the short term? Same thing with fear and greed. This is a mid-range 54 read, not a extreme range on either side. If you remember at the lows, we were here before the before the crash, we were here. So um, you could actually see it right here, January all the way up towards 100 and March all the way down towards zero. We're at about we're at 54, which is right right in the middle. Um, which is probably why we're having trouble finding anything to do. <laughs> Although we did have a pretty good, uh, exciting active week, but uh, it's, it's getting harder and harder to get exposure because um, uh, anyway, y y you should have exposure by now is, is really what it comes down to. Uh, National Association of Active Investment Managers. Um, so they basically uh, came off the boil a bit in the last week. So they're going to, if, if this persists higher, they're going to really have to chase this up. We'll see in coming weeks what their exposure looks like. But again, not a sign of euphoria. Um, okay, so the message for the week was that for us to hit a recovery level of that 60% of S&P components above their 200-day moving averages, we're going to need to see this trend of broadening participation and partial rotation from leaders to laggards that we discussed in previous week's notes. And again, that's uh, banks, uh, and we said it here. In case we forgot to mention it for the last six to eight weeks, we like banks. Okay, we were on TV, you know, March 20th. You can uh, go up here. 
to feature it on and see all of our spots from mid-March and early April when we were saying we're buying high quality stocks and we're talking uh, Wells Fargo and JP Morgan and all that stuff and people were looking at us like we had three heads. So um, we also like and own pockets of defense stocks, home builders, energy and small caps. It will not be a straight line up, but over the next six to 18 months, we believe we'll see relative strength in these groups. The other aspect is uh, this will happen as demand kicks in, people return to work and what will be greater than $10 trillion of stimulus aid and liquidity starts to circulate in the economy. We may see growth levels by the first half of 2021. That would not be possible if not for COVID-19, as we would never have this level of global coordinated fiscal and monetary policy at play. So um, the other thing that is the subtext for this is that, you know, recession is two quarters of negative GDP. We had Q1. We're obviously going to have Q2. So it's going to be quote unquote technically called a recession. But by the time they call it, that will already be recovering out of it. And um, so as Warren Buffett always says, if you wait for the robins to sing, it's already spring. You got to plant your seeds before it happens. But what always happens coming out of quote unquote recessions is rates start to move from emergency levels, which is where they're at now, zero, and they start to slowly tick up as demand and growth comes back and demand for capital comes back because people want to grow and expand and start businesses and, and do all that. Um, and that's when cyclicals outperform at the beginning of the cycle, not at the end of the cycle. So that's where we are. And that's why in particular, so many people are making the case like, oh, you know, people have been talking value for 10 years and, you know, and some have, uh, and that's for sure. But the point is there are specific times that whether you're a growth or a value religion, it doesn't really matter. What matters is when does it work and when doesn't it work? And cyclicals, work best coming out of two quarters of negative GDP growth. That's just empirical data. So leave aside whether you're, um, you know, a Bill O'Neill buying breakouts or if you're a deep value uh, Ben Graham person buying net nets, uh, that doesn't matter. What matters is what works under what economic conditions. And that doesn't mean th that... Um, growth and tech stocks will stop working. All we're talking about, and it doesn't mean that value didn't work during the last 10 years. There were tons of value stocks that made a huge amount of money if you were doing your sector rotation properly at specific times. Um, and that will that will be the case even if value relative or cyclicals relatively outperform in the next 18 months coming out of the recession. Um, but But that's the subtext as to why now versus the narrative, oh, well, people have been saying for 10 years, you know, growth is its values turn. It has nothing to do with turn. We finally got the recession, and that's when cyclicals outperform. And, and we'll also take a look at some other data that supports this um, moving forward. So that's that. Um, next, we have, okay, we covered the savings rate. Uh, this is interesting. Uh, Charlie Sharp of Wells Fargo was making some points, you know, talking about consumer spending. Now we're just shifting gears into the recovery here. <coughs> debit cards, uh, debit card spending had been down 20 to 25% earlier in the crisis from the year before. 
now, depending on the week, spend is up five to 10% from the week before. Pretty broad, little travel, little bit of restaurants, uh, a marked improvement. Uh, Mike Corbat of Citigroup said the same thing. Um, spending's up. Travel and dining are seeing some pickup. And also, a lot of consumers, uh, four to five percent of the bank's consumer loans requested payment for forbearance. But a significant percentage of those who signed up have not taken advantage of the programs. It speaks volumes for the positive effects of the government programs. And the other thing is 25 to 35% of those who've requested forbearance um, want to make payments and are making payments. And we'll see what happens moving forward. But that was really constructive to see. Now, the add-on that I wanted to put, we just did these S&P stocks above the 200-day moving average. This chart I pulled up today, the S&P stocks above the 50-day moving average. Now, this is why everyone's saying the market's overbought, okay? And this was really interesting because I would look at this number at 90% of stocks, S&P stocks are now above their 50-day moving average, and I'd say the market's overbought. That would be normal in a range-bound market. However, we're coming out of a period of dislocation, and here's what happens. Um, here you have, right here you have um, this first example. So basically if it breaks below 5% and then it shoots above 90%, which we're at right now. So here was 2002, it got down to 0 0.20. And then by the time it hit above 90% of the S&P 500, so 450 of the 500 S&P stocks were above their 50-day moving average. Market had almost made new highs already, but it was just the beginning of the rally. Same in 2009, you hit 1%. So five of the S&P 500 stocks were above their 50-day moving average. By the time it hit 90%, uh, you were probably up about 30% off the bottom, 35% off the bottom. And that was the beginning of a long-term rally till for two plus years. Same thing in 2011, uh, got down to uh, about less than 20 stocks out of 500 were above their 50-day moving average. By the time it got above 90, uh, the market had, was close to new highs, but not quite there. And you did get a little pullback, but not, not back down to the lows, and then a monster rally for another four years. Same thing in 2016. You can see the numbers here. This is where it was quote-unquote overbought. These blue lines are when it hit 90% of the S&P 500 or more was over their 50-day moving average, and it was just the beginning, just the beginning, just the beginning, just the beginning, 2016. Again, you were almost near new highs again. Everyone's saying the market was overbought. The bull market was over. We're going to roll over, head and triple head and shoulders or whatever the pattern of the day was, and three more year rally. Um, same thing in 2019. We'd retaken the October highs, um, and then we just kept rallying for another year after we were overbought at 90%. And now we got down to 1% in March were um, above their 50-day moving average. So now, or five stocks, and now we're over 90%, so over 450 of the 500 are over their 50-day moving average. Everyone's saying we're gonna roll back over. 
Um, history doesn't support that. Anything is possible in the markets. All we can ever do is play probabilities, but this was really amazing because if someone told me that 90% of the stocks are above their 50-day moving average, I'd say we're overbought. And in a range-bound market or a slightly trending market, that would be correct and it would be time to be lightening up and rotating. And uh, here, it doesn't support it. I mean, yes, in the short term, you could get this pullback like you got in 11 even in uh, 2016, you consolidated a little bit sideways. Same in 2003, a little bit. But man, it was just the beginning of the rally. So um, that's what's happened historically. It doesn't mean that's what's going to happen moving forward. But this, this one blew me away as well today. Okay, next. Um, global equity flows. Going to just pull this in real quick. Uh, all right. So... Here we are. This is just showing what it says. Uh, global equity flows and equity market performance. This is from Citi. If you look in 2009, it got really low. 2011, it did the same thing. And that this was a sign of recovery. 2016, same thing. This was a sign of recovery. And here we are in 2020, same exact thing. We're curling up here. We're still dramatically under allocated but this is where recoveries happen so uh looks a lot like the 2009 recovery here where you had this kind of double pullback which we had here and now we're starting to reallocate so um we're certainly not you know <laughs> i'll say this we're not up here where you know would be more reason to be a little bit concerned about being overbought we're we're way down here which is where people are just starting to get re-exposed. Re okay, next. Um, economic numbers for the week. I just want to go through a few of these. By the way, if you get cut off on the podcast, just go to hedgefundtips.com and you will be able to click on category video cast and you'll be able to see whatever you missed the last five or ten minutes. Um I put a lot of effort and there's a lot of data to go through each week. So I just want to make sure you get it all and take advantage of it. So, okay, uh, a couple things I want to touch on today. Consumer sentiment came in a little bit less than expected, 72.3. Uh, however, it was better than the last read and it's moving in the right direction. Um, the Chicago PMIs were weak today. Um, uh, we also had personal spending was a little bit weaker, but we also saw that other da data from Charlie Scharf and from Michael Corbat that's showing some positive signs there. I mean, it's hard to spend when you can't leave your house. I mean, yes, you can order off of Amazon, but you're not out and about doing things. So th these will pick up as, as people go back. Personal income was obviously up because of the stimulus checks, so that was a huge beat on expectations. Um, and the rig count, let's see if that came in. Okay, the rig count was down again, which is why you saw oil spike at the end of the day. It had a nice move. It's down to 301, and that's just mind-boggling. Uh, I'm going to actually just skip right ahead and show you what that looks like. Uh, we were at 1,600 in 2014. We're now down to 300. Oh, this is U.S. rigs. 
This is oil rigs only are, are, are down from 1,600 to 222. So we've, we've taken off, you know, almost uh, getting close to 90%, 85-90% of, um, of the rigs. You know, low prices cure low prices, and we're going to start to see that rebalance in the next 12 to 18 months. Which is, uh, which is another reason we like these cyclicals. So um, all we can go by is the data and, and how that works out historically. You saw a similar situation with the rig count dropping precipitously from you know, 400 to 100 uh, in 2000. And then you had the rally of all rallies off that 100 level uh, to 2007. Um, these oil stocks, were most of them were up. 300 to 700 percent from this period of 2001 to 2007. So we will see on that front. Other data that we wanted to just touch on for this week. Uh, obviously, there was a build in crude this week, so that's why the uh, energy stocks were a bit weak on Thursday. Um, initial jobless claims they continue to come down, so that's positive. They missed expectations a little bit, but. Uh, they continue to tick down each week. Uh, GDP was revised down to negative 5% for Q1. So again, we're going to get the two quarters, a technical recession, but we'll be recovering by the time they declare it. Um, continuing jobless claims actually beat. They were down to 21 million from 20, near 25 million. They were expected to be over 25 million. So that, that was the most important metric of Thursday. Um, Mortgage applications were up 2.7% versus being down 2.6% the last time. That's a big deal. That was from the Mortgage Bankers Association. They were up 2.7% from one week earlier. The rates are at historic lows, so that's very good for home builders, which we've talked about ad infinitum the last few weeks. And the last thing, was there anything on Tuesday? Was new home sales were up. Uh, six-tenths of a percent after being expected to be down 21.9. So there's demand for these new homes. And those 85 million millennials, they were already starting the um, housing formation and, and coronavirus has accelerated them out of the cities. And we're seeing it in uh, Toll Brothers Beat, <coughs> um, Pulte last week we talked about. I think uh, LGI was on today. They beat New home sales were up six. Were at six hundred twenty-three thousand. Expectations were four hundred ninety thousand. So there are a lot of things happening. Again, these are cyclicals, guys. These are what come out of out of recessions, not into recessions, out of recessions. So um, all the data is lining up supportive of the relative outperformance. Doesn't mean that there won't be tech stocks and growth stocks that that perform. There will be. I can assure you. And the ones that do perform will dramatically perform but um these are based on where we are in the cycle a favorable setup for for the type of sectors that we're talking about here um okay so we went through the economic data let's go to the other thing that's uh going to be helping this we'll yeah, get to that five yeah okay uh, vacation rentals around the world have jumped 127% since early April in a sign that people are slowly starting to travel again. Uh, that was also supported by China domestic air travel. You've heard me talk about seats in the air 
on a bunch of media appearances in uh, late March and early April, I was saying, well, China's already up um, off their trough. Uh, so, so they've doubled now off of their trough. So they, their cases peaked February 5th, and they're now at 50% of what they were a year ago. So we're now in at the end of May. So about three and a half months, they've been able to get to 50% of their domestic air travel. If we did that, our peak cases was, I, was, I think, April 14th. And our travel was at the trough at 87,000 people going through the TSA. Uh, down from 2.2 million the year before. If we followed that trajectory, uh, so we'd be at May, June, July. So probably by mid-August, if we got domestic air travel to that level that they've been able to accomplish in China domestically only, uh, we would be at 1.1, give or take 1.1 million people a day. But just take a look at what's happened in the first month and a half. We went from 80,000 to, uh, or 87,000 to now we're in the 300,000s. We hit a 340 number this week. We hit 320 yesterday. So if we follow that trajectory and get to, you know, 1.1 or 1.2 by August, that would have huge, huge positive implications for the economy, for fuel demand, for um, uh, just commerce in general. It means people are doing business, people are out and about. And I've said it, you know, for four weeks in a row, if they made masks mandatory at the airports, which government has some control over, they could do that. Then the airlines could say, you got to wear a mask on the airline. And I think people would just get orders of magnitude, more confidence to get out there and take advantage of these travel deals. I mean, I, I you know, we have a flight book for August that we've had for a while. I haven't canceled it yet. I think we're probably going to just take it and wear masks and get on with our our lives. So um, we'll see. That's to be determined. But it is domestic, and um, but uh, I, I I'd feel a lot more comfortable if everyone was wearing a mask, which I think a lot of people do on the airplane. But it would be nice to see a hundred percent. And we'll see what the case counts are like at that point. But uh, that is positive news. <clears throat> now. As we talk about banks, because we've been pounding the table on it, something came up this week that I thought was very interesting. Beyond, we're going to get the CCAR results shortly, which I think will be a catalyst to the upside for banks, showing that they're better capitalized than everyone predicted. Um, number two, the Fed is talking about next steps as far as um, what the Fed will do next, according to a Goldman Sachs economist. And one of the regional governors was out this week talking about the same thing. Uh, John Williams, New York Fed president, which is called yield curve control, effectively um, targeting the yield curve to steepen it, which is effectively just dropping buckets of money into the bank's bottom line and also incentivizing credit lending because the banks are, you know, if they keep the short end of the curve low and they steepen the long end of the curve, and that's going to help banks net interest mar margin, which is more than 50%, uh, about 50% of the revenues. 
and will get credit flying into the economy, both at the consumer and business level. So this would be something really, really interesting if they can do it. And if they do do it, it'll be great for banks. It'll be great for consumers. It'll be great for business. It'll be great for the economy. And it's certainly something to consider in uh, crisis periods like we're, we're coming out of now. So this was a big, big development and we'll keep our eyes peeled on yield curve control. Next, um, this is actually interesting. Uh, one of the 